Motors Show, your home for car talk covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Let's rev up the conversation. Time for Driven Radio Show. Hey, car fans. Welcome to Driven Radio, your weekly automotive happy hour. I am Brett Hatfield here with my engineer and co-host, Mr. Mark Groves. Yo! Our special guest this week is David Welch. David is the award-winning Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News, and he covers the auto industry for Bloomberg Business Week magazine. David has written six cover stories about GM for Business Week, as well as major articles and news-breaking coverage about all the major auto companies and related topics. He is currently president of the Automotive Press Association, and David is the author of Charging Ahead, GM, Mary Barra, and the Reinvention of an American Icon. That will that is available right now on Kindle and audiobook, with a print version releasing October 10th from HarperCollins Leadership. David, welcome to Driven Radio Show. Thanks for having me, guys. Much appreciated. Sorry for a little bit of uh, a little issue working out there, but uh, <laughs> yeah, pre-recording it was a nightmare. <laughs> we, we wouldn't want everybody to think this goes smoothly all the time. Uh, sitting here hammering on a keyboard, going, "Why? Why? Why do you hate you me?" Know, I don't think anybody in this this show here was in the AV club in high school. So. No. Not any value to it. <laughs> I, I, I was in the gifted program and in school suspension at the same time. Where the heck is the VHS button on this damn thing? Yeah, it's been a day or two. Uh, how did you get your start in auto journalism? Uh, are you a car guy? I'm, I am assuming you're a car guy. And have you always been? Yeah, I've always liked cars, you know, starting with like collecting matchbox cars and building the, uh, Revel model cars and painting them with testers model paint, and I had them on my dresser as a kid. Um, back when I was 13 and my older brother was 16, he decided to make a muscle car out of one of the worst quality vehicles ever, which was the Volari Roadrunner. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that- yeah, he bought the car for, I think, $800, and he bought an engine for 1200 We turned it automatic into a manual. Um, <laughs> My grandfather bought him the paint one year for his birthday. We knocked out the rust, put fiberglass, put Bondo over it, and painted it that kind of fire orange from the 70s or 80s. And um, it did. It was a fun car. It He was constantly under the hood of it. I was 13, so mostly what I do is hand people wrenches and watch my dad and brother argue about what was wrong with the car. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, we had fuzzy seat covers. We had fuzzy dice. He was cranking the Van Halen, and we were driving the rubber around. Yeah. Upstate New York. I'm pretty sure Mark would buy that car now. Yeah, I would probably drive that right freaking now. Uh, what kind of wheels do you have on it? No, it's, you're good. We had uh, brush chrome, four spoke Krager wheels. Boom! Four spoke, but still <laughs> Kragers. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The four spoke, they were pretty awesome, actually. I would put those wheels on a car now. I thought they, they, they still look cool. Yeah, you're bona fide. It's uh, all good. You said Craigers. Mark sitting in his bona own fide. sauce. <laughs> and by the way, my college job, my college summer job, was working at National Auto Parts Warehouse, which I think merged with Western Auto and probably was subsumed into, you know, O'Reilly's or one of these yeah. guys advanced. Um, but I was in the picking area. And what I loved about that job is you could walk around that place. And with the exception of body panels, you could pretty much build a car with the parts that were lying around it. Yeah. I had brake parts. So I was climbing up, you know, we didn't, they weren't really interested in OSHA standards there. No. So I would climb up, I'd climb, you know, up like 12, 15, 20 feet and grab a six pack of calipers in, in one arm. And, and then come back down nice. With the other. Uh, Bendix calipers, brake pads and rotors. I had that whole area. We called my spine the lift, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> Always looking for the young guy yeah, who looks like he can. Lift. <laughs> I was the lift. Always looking for the young guy who looks like he could swing around in a tree. Yeah, <laughs> hire that kid. We'll send him up to get the top shelf. He ain't the smart, but but he bounces good. <laughs> He's the college help. If he gets hurt, who cares? <laughs> we don't have to put him on disability. He's, He's part time and sitting at a desk anyway. What does he do? Come make, on, make sure you get him out of here before he gets 39 hours <laughs> all right <laughs> oh no there was a 50 60 they didn't mind the overtime they worked us to death so what kind of uh what kind of car did you end up owning have you have you been able to find a classic that you liked or a, a nice speedy the uh, password mobile? is mopar <laughs> um i don't i don't have a classic although i've looked at them uh and, and self-control has always gotten the better of me but 
I drive a, a mini Clubman, John Cooper works. So I've got, uh, in fact, the one I bought is 2019. And it's the, uh, when I was looking for it, there were one of seven new cars left in the U.S. that had the John Cooper works high performance package with a manual because for the 2020 model year, the, the JCW no longer has a manual, it's paddle shift. And I, I absolutely hate paddle shift. Um, Agreed. I, I just don't, I don't, what's the point? Um, <laughs> like with, with a stick shift and a clutch, you feel like you're one with the machine. With the paddle shift, it's like some annoying video game that I don't know how to play. There you <laughs> go. And I'd rather just have an automatic, right? And just screw it, just drive. Good Fair. man. Fair. This is this is going quite well. <laughs> I'm showing my age here, right? Because I want a manual. T- I'm one of the last Luddites driving a manual transmission. Hey, hey, hey! hey I hey. just bought a uh, 2000 Nissan Xterra. Had like eighty five thousand miles and zero rust. I have had to replace a couple of things on it uh, recently. Well, yesterday was the battery, but yeah, it's a five speed manual. Uh, wow, four by I didn't four. know they made them. the the X Terror was a heck of a, an SUV. Like that, that was the first vehicle that kind of brought Nissan back when cars yeah. was going to yeah. over late nineties, and it was a, like really great SUV. It's a it's nothing that I'll ever burn up the roads with, but uh, it's fun to drive. Uh, all I have to do now is put a much, much better stereo system in yeah, it and some Van Halen, and uh, <laughs> and I will be rock and roll. So uh, Hey, I have a good Van Halen I'll song. hail the five-speed. Sweet. Uh, my fair-weather driver these days is a 65 Stingray convertible with a, no, with a four-speed. Cool. And uh, I bought it last year in, in Sacramento and then, like a fool, drove it home to Kansas. But... Uh, <laughs> uh, on the way, I got to drive through the Tahoe National Forest at sunset listening to Van Halen. So, there we go. As well you should. <laughs> uh, so, how long have you been an auto-journalist? Um, where did you find your yeah, start? So, sure. So, I started probably mid-90s. I was working down in Texas. And um, I was actually covering banking for the Dallas Business Journal. And we, had, we had a car review column every week. And only two of us actually applied for it. And, you know, I mean, I, I mean, everybody, I thought these people are crazy. You get, someone gives you a car every week for the week to drive and you just get to write about it. And uh, so I, I started, you know, I was, I was still covering the banking beat by day, you know, but I sort of had this little side gig at the paper writing car reviews. And I got the bug for it. And then uh, I, after a couple of years, I moved across town to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and I started covering the auto industry more as a beat writer. Because, you know, in Fort Worth at the time, this was probably 97, 98, yeah, the big GM plant in Arlington that I covered, along with a bunch of aerospace plants that were also United Auto Workers plants. But the other thing in that, that market at the time that was interesting was AutoNation and CarMax were buying up dealerships left and right. So you had, you know, I was covering a factory and all the union issues because there was outsourcing and other stuff going on. So there was a local strike and a national strike at GM. I'm covering this revolution in retail with, you know, big mega retailers buying up the mom and pop shops. Uh, I was writing reviews. So I was into the, you know, above the product, the manufacturing labor side and the retail side. I kind of learned everything there was about covering the auto beat. And then I moved up to Detroit uh, with the Detroit News. Um, to kind of get to the epicenter of it. And uh, we've only left the beat for a few years in that entire time since. Nice. So having a front row seat for everything that was going on GM-related in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, did that draw you? Did you, uh, did it make you into a GM fan? Um, you know, it's funny. I, I see people on Twitter, you know, there are people who hate GM. There are Chevy guys who like GM. There's this, there's this whole Tesla cult. I have favorite sports teams, but I never had a favorite company. Um, now, my dad is a Chevy guy. He, he, you know, only drove Chevys, I think, with the exception of the 84 Chrysler minivan, because we had three kids and a fourth one on the way. Um, you know, and everybody, you know, the minivan was just such an innovation in terms of family vehicles. We had that. But other than that, I, I wanted to drive on my dad's 85 Impala wagon, uh, rear drive in the snows of Syracuse, New York. Oh, shagging uh, wagon. <laughs> yeah. uh, with a V8. And um, so he was always a Chevy guy. I mean, I guess in a way I've got a soft spot for, for 
uh, for Chevy. And I always liked Cadillacs as a kid. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it's an important company, company, even though it's not the GM uh, that it once was back in the 60s. I think it's still an important company. And, you know, you, you kind of, what interests me is the drama, right? Because it, it really was, and, and this is in the book, I've got a lot of detail early on. In the early 60s, it was probably the greatest company in the world yeah. of any industry. It was the most profitable, and they, they did a lot of things with technology. They were, they were making stuff that had nothing to do with cars, like the first heart pump for uh, heart transplants. They helped develop the Lunar Rover, all kinds of crazy stuff. They just had amazing R&D. The, the, you know, industry-leading design with tail fins. I mean, everybody copied them. You know, they had other firsts that make, you know, guys like us smile, like high-compression engines and stuff like that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they really did great stuff. And as a business, people copied their accounting techniques and management techniques and everything. And then, you know, they kind of squandered it all away over about 25 years. And then there was this, you know, kind of mid-90s to bankruptcy, your glide path to doom. And then it's reborn. And it's, just, it's, it's like such a great drama, this whole, you know, long tail of destruction and this rebirth and what I like about this Mary Barra story with, you know, cleaning up and getting rid of a lot of the old messes and, and money losing operations and then investing in electric vehicles and trying to gain market share back and become a leader again. Um, it's, it's the ultimate, if she pulls it off, redemption story. And, you know, I, I think she set the company up to be able to do it, whether or not they pull it off, you know, a lot, a lot still remains and it's a tough job to do, but, you know, if she can really pull off the General Motors redemption story, I just think that's a great drama. Can you tell her, tell us a little about her ascendancy? Uh, you've been doing this for well over 25 years, or right about 25 years. What has it been like watching Mary Barra in that time? You know, it, it, she kind of, in a way, came out of nowhere. And, and you have to remember, you know, she, she was head of human resources, which is now, she's an engineer. It was not a great assignment for her. Um, so she's head of HR in the bankruptcy years. And, in fact, Dan Ackerson, who is the, the, the former telecom guy who the board of directors made CEO, he put her into product development. And he, he told me, he said, I pull, called her in my office and said, what the hell are you doing in HR? Because um, <laughs> HR is not exactly the, you know, the training ground for the future leaders of America, typically. And, and in any company, probably even in HR outsource firms, they don't even take the HR person, <laughs> the, CEO, the CEO's job. Um, but she was, you know, she's an electrical engineer by training. And, you know, in, in bankruptcy, you know, they fired Rick Wagner, the Treasury Department did, and then they fired the CFO who became CEO, Fritz Henderson. And they had, you know, and they fired a lot of the layer of management just beneath them. So that gave people like Mary Barra, who was sort of in the second, third tier of managers, a clean shot at the top jobs. So for those, and she had never run something like GM Europe, GM New Mexico. You know, as journalists in Detroit, we, we would meet those people at different times who ran the big global operations that President GM China, Europe, you name it. We never met the head of HR or even, you know, different heads of engineering necessarily. So we didn't really know her that well. And then, you know, she ends up taking over product development. That in and of itself was a bit unusual because she was, she was an electrical engineer, but she grew up in manufacturing. And usually the head of product development, you know, they were engineers who worked on the cars. They were the people who were actually in product development. They came out of powertrain or something like that. And, and they maybe, maybe they weren't designers, but they worked closely with designers and chief engineers on vehicles. So they all knew each other. She, you know, I remember when she got named, People in design and product development calling me and saying, you know, we don't really know her that well. She was in manufacturing engineering. Like they knew her, but not, you know, they hadn't worked side by side with her for years. So in, in that sense, she kind of came out of nowhere. And, you know, she's, um, she's you know, hyper-professional. She, she doesn't get drawn into, you know, kind of the backslapping sort of thing that the old GM executives did with media and others. Um, and, you know, very comes off as, as very smart and you know and, and good at what she does but 
you know, she, she keeps a, a certain distance, which was different, you know, because we had guys like Bob Lutz, you know, who was this larger than life guy, and, you know, had a huge collection of antique and classic cars and flew jet fighters and helicopters and, you know, the, the whole macho car guy thing. Um, and, and a lot of the people around him were that way. She was totally different. But she was much more much more of a professional leader than I think we've been used to seeing at that point. So she was, uh, you know, she was. It, it was very different watching her in that role. And you know, a lot of what she had to do was still GM was still cleaning itself up after after bankruptcy, cutting costs, leaning up the operation, improving quality, all all the sort of blocking and tackling stuff. And, and she was pretty good at that, and they made strides. You know, w- one of the stories I have in the book that kind of shows who she was, when she was at a product development, uh, they were developing the Chevy Bolt, the electric car. And the GM engineers, you know, they didn't really have any interest in doing this because they made the Bolt, which was the plug-in hybrid before that, and it lost lots of money, and it didn't sell that great. And these guys were just thinking, all right, fine, we have to do this vehicle and meet California regulations but, you know, these are guys who were driving and engineering pickup trucks and Corvettes and, you know, eventually Camaros. They, they didn't have interest in this stuff, most of them. Some did, but not a lot. And they just wanted to do the kind of bare bones minimum to beat California rules. And they said, yeah, you know, 150 miles of battery range, that's good enough. And she put her foot down and said, no, if we go with less than 200, we're going to embarrass ourselves. And really push them to come out with something that was significant. And they came out with one that was 238 miles of range. And if you look at it compared to today, I mean, it's a compact vehicle, so it's not totally Apple's Apple's comparison. But compared to like the Ford, the Hyundai, and the Kia that are out there, which are pretty good EVs, you know, the 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 Bolt's 238. Now it's up in the 260s. Actually, beats those vehicles. And that's with GM's prior generation battery. So she really pushed them to kind of put out a vehicle that they could at least. I mean, the, the Bolt's a compact hatchback. Americans hate compact hatchbacks. It's, it's not exactly, you know, high on the desirable scale for most people. But no, it looks like, EV was a technology achievement. It makes your Cooper look like a large car. It does. I mean, well, actually, the club, the club right now kind of is a large car. It's, it's one of the things about, about Mini. Like, they, 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 they kind of max out the Minis every model year. They are not, or every new generation. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. How did Mary Barra go from her engineering role to CEO? Certainly that had to be a surprise to the industry. It, it was, although, you know, her profile was rising when she was head of product development. And, you know, again, like the field had been narrowed down because all these other characters we knew at GM for, you know, the 10 years before that had all been, they'd either retired, left, or been fired. So the candidates... It got kind of got down to a, 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 the biggest field was four people, and it was Mark Royce, who was a uh, longtime product guy, he was running GM North America. Um, but he didn't. He and Ackerson didn't see eye to eye on things. Ackerson didn't think he was ready. There was Steve Gursky, Wall Street banker, who um, had run GM Europe and was kind of there as as Dan Ackerson's uh, kind of advisor. Dan didn't think he had enough experience running major operations. I, I know Steve. I don't think he really wanted to move to Detroit and run the company either. So those two were sort of quickly, you know, off the list. And the other one was Dan Ammon, who is a Wall Street guy who became CFO. And Dan had restructured a lot of the operations. And Mary Barrow, they were the two candidates. And if you think about that, Mary had been, you know, an HR and manufacturing engineering and a GM lifer. Um, but her biggest position was head of product development. Dan Ammon was this Wall Street guy who was treasurer and then chief financial officer. And he'd only been there at that point for five or six years. So this is this is a board of directors really kind of, you know, winging a prayer in a sense with both of them. Not that they weren't competent, but they just didn't have a long track record and they weren't really known quantities. Uh, and, you know, one thing they did is when, when Mary did get the job, and I think her experience as a running product development and knowing, I mean, she was actually a plant manager at the Hamtramck Cadillac plant and had worked in, worked in other plants. Her, her knowledge of taking vehicles from engineering into the assembly line, managing union workers on the floor, I think that won it out for her over Ammon because 
as one retired GM executive put it to me, he's like, Mary grew up in the earthiest part of our business. You know, this, this, uh, you know, alchemy of, you know, men and machines, you know, mm-hmm. building cars. And she understood that really well. And, and I think that won it out for her, but, you know, it, Again, she, you know, didn't have these really big positions and had kind of gotten to the top very quickly. And what they did is that the chairman of the company, who's not an executive chairman, uh, Ted Soso, who had run Cummins Diesel, um, they had him as kind of sitting almost on her shoulder, I think, as, as chairman while she was the CEO. And there was a period, I think it was about two years, that where she, I think he, he you know, was kind of there as, as a bit of a mentor while she was growing into the job. And it was a tough period, remember. Her first weeks in the job, the, the, the whole ignition switch debacle blows up in her face. Well, and it didn't get much easier for her because she closed a lot of the plants and took a ton of heat for it. Uh, how did she respond to that? How did she handle that pressure? You know, she, you know, like I said earlier, she is always very professional. That's her demeanor. She doesn't get drawn in. Uh, people who know her and have worked with her say that she has very high emotional intelligence, which is to say she's kind of unflappable. Um, you know, I've asked her really hard questions in interviews, and other executives, you know, I've gotten, I've annoyed a few people over the years in interviews. Um, with Mary Barra, you get the look, but she doesn't really give you, you know, any sort of angry outburst or anything like that. Um, and look, she's taken a lot of heat from the union, so she just kind of went about trying to get a deal done. She just, just stayed on course and did it. And that's that's kind of how she reacts. She, she doesn't talk. She just does. So how much risk is she taking uh, going forward with plans to convert GM to entirely electric? You know, this is a risky play. Um, and look, there's a funny thing about GM. You talk to some people who are all in on electric vehicles. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, GM's got all this investment, all these promises, but but Ford beat them to the punch with the lightning and Tesla's out there, so GM's a laggard. Now, you know, I look at that and say, well, EVs are 5% of the market, mostly luxury vehicles, so they haven't left a lot of money on the table. And by the way, of that 5% in the U.S., Tesla's got 80% of it. So, (laughs) you know, the rest of the companies are fighting over 1% of the market if they don't have a lot of EVs out there, and GM's got some out there. Um, so there is this accusation that they're not moving fast enough. I don't think that's right, and that's why I did the book. They've got all this investment. They've got, you know, I, I, by the end of next year, they'll have at least five, I think six electric vehicles for sale in the U.S., which should be more than Tesla's, even if Tesla gets that Cybertruck out. So, and then they'll have the Equinox, which is $30,000, which, you know, that's a big test. Is middle America ready for electric vehicles? You know, is the middle-income buyer who doesn't have three, four other vehicles in their garage, are they ready to plug in? And that's part of the risk. Um, the other part of the risk, not just for GM, but I, I think it's more so for GM because they're making such a big bet is this. You look at all the companies that are going big in EVs, GM, Volkswagen, Ford, even the Koreans. They haven't increased how much they spend to develop new vehicles every year. Uh, but they're putting out a lot of electric vehicles. So what does that mean for the gasoline-burning vehicles? That means they're investing less on those. Um, now, look, if you're going to make a new Equinox that's electric-powered, you could probably use that same body and put an internal combustion powertrain in there. But it tells you they're not spending a lot on new powertrains, and the, you know they're still just spending less on those vehicles. So if you're GM and you're putting all your money, or not all of it, but a lot of it, in the EVs and the consumers aren't there, you, you have to some degree disinvested from your internal combustion vehicles. You're not necessarily trying to make those the best they can be, and you could lose those people. And if everyone's not along for the ride at the pace you want them to be, then there's there's real risk there. Um, what you know, what GM has told me, not just Mary, but the other executives is, they don't want to get caught not making the change. Um, if that's where the buyers are going and they don't have the cars, that's a bigger risk than going too fast because to a certain degree, they can throttle back. You, you look at uh, the, the old Saturn plant in Spring Hill, Tennessee. They're making the Cadillac Lyric, which is the new electric SUV there, but they're also making uh, what a GMC and a Cadillac gasoline power. So those, some of these plants can flex. So, you know, I, I think they can adjust assembly 
to be able to to meet both needs. But you know, again, if you're focusing all your best engineers and a lot of money on the new stuff, and the buyers aren't there, it's a very big risk. It will be interesting to see, won't it? Because uh, you know, that's one of the things we've talked about a lot in the show, uh, in past shows, etc is kind of a dichotomy between uh, uh, two different types of vehicles. And I'm wondering if they can get the long-term batteries that can, you know, where you can drive, like from here in Kansas City, uh, I've driven up into the mountains uh, outside of Denver uh, uh, many times over the past couple dozen years. And uh, I can't do that in an EV. Well, you can't, you can't do it all in one day. Oh, true. Yeah, I would have to split my trip up. Yeah. In much, whereas in this one, it's like it's a one shot. You know, within uh, 12 hours, I'm up at a Moraine Park getting ready to camp. But uh, uh, with an EV, uh, I, I could see it as around town as a scooter. But at those price ranges, it's just it's for a uh, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about my APCO shirt here. Uh, it's it's one of those things as a definite lower middle class type of guy. Um, <laughs> That's a hard decision to make, and we'll see. It'll be interesting to see because I, I have a Chevy pickup, but it's a and it was one of those tragic decisions on my part. I picked the six cylinder because it was supposed to be bulletproof. Yeah, the six cylinder inlines were yeah, but not, but the V sixes, not, not the one you got. Eh. <laughs> it's still well, running though. <laughs> because this whole electric conversion needs three things. One you mentioned earlier, uh, Marcus, the prices have to come down. Yeah, um, and I think they will. Um, the charging issue, look, there's sort of a cultural, sort of a, a motoring culture issue that people need to get their head around, which is you're just going to charge your car like you charge your cell phone. You know, and, and you wake up in the morning and it's full every day. So you're not really worried about finding a filling station on every corner for it. The road trip is the issue. And GM's been pushing the Biden administration when they build out this highway charging system to have a charging bank every 50 miles, which is about what you need, right? That's sort of like rest areas or something like that. Um, and that that would work. The issue I have still is like, so I, I live in Detroit. I drive through Canada to my mother's house in upstate New York. And I can stop in Canada, top up, get to Syracuse. My mother's not going to have a charger. So <laughs> I'm going to have to find a place somewhere there to charge up that's not where I'm going to sit around and, and relax. She'll come out with the charger that's for that cuckoo clock, though, you know, that little electric one yeah. she bought at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> ah, you betcha. I got you, baby. Mom's there. And then, and then the third thing is, you know, they got they have to come up with sources for all these battery minerals. You know, right now some of them are sourced in unsavory places like the Congo and Russia, so, and, and they're expensive. So. Yeah. There, there are plenty of minerals in Canada and the U.S. board, but then you've got to get permits for the mines and all that sort of thing. And, and look, the Biden administration's incentives are, are you know, in the right place to do that, but they don't control all the state laws and state regulations and stuff that open mines. And you know, then you've got to get processing. You're basically, they have to relocate a battery mineral sourcing industry for the for the cell materials yeah. to be able to do this. Not completely, but they're going to have to do it uh, over over time, and the sooner the better. So, you know, electric vehicles are coming, no doubt in my mind. But, you know, how quick people are going to want them, and how quickly we can get charging and mining and all and and, and all that manufacturing really going here. Uh, I think it depends know. upon how thinly you can slice those unicorns, because if you can get them wafer thin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the tech about it. It's just scary. <laughs> the The hurdles of battery development and manufacturing are something they're going to have to overcome, but they're also going to have to overcome consumer desire. Yeah. And with only 5% of the market chasing EVs, it almost seems like they're answering a question that hasn't been asked yet. That, that's true. Um, and, you know, the... the you know, Two ways to look at that. One is, you know, I, I remember when the Japanese automakers first started with Nissan and Toyota, came out with pickup trucks, especially full-size trucks. And I was writing for Business Week at the time, which Bloomberg later acquired. And all my editors in New York for Business Week said, oh, we got to write the story saying it's the end of Detroit because, you know, the Japanese have pickup trucks now and they took over in passenger cars and minivans they're going to do with the trucks. The problem was, uh, American 
pickup truck owners were not unhappy. You know, Ford, Dodge, and, and Chevy pickup owners love their trucks. Yeah. And the Japanese have never really managed to dislodge those people from those trucks. Yeah. And I do think, to, to your point, Brett, that getting people out of their gasoline-burning vehicles, if they're already nice and they do what they want and they're cheaper than electric vehicles, you really have to have electric drive capture your imagination to do that. Now, in a lot of ways, EVs are better vehicles. They're quieter. They're a lot faster. With all that computing, you know, with all that battery power on board, you have more computing power, so you get great infotainment. I mean, they're really great vehicles, and they are fun to drive. And it's a different feel, that acceleration and that heavy weight on the bottom. It's very, it's a very stable feel. Um, you know, I drive my Clubman on a, a speedway occasionally up north of Detroit here, and a friend of mine has a Tesla Model Y, uh, or no, he's got yeah, it's got the Model Y, and we've taken it out there, and um, it's it's a pretty cool feel with all you know running it on a track on tight turns because all the weight is in the floor with the battery, and it's a very stable vehicle. So when people drive them, I think they're going to like them, uh, but you still have to get them out of what they're driving now. Sure. And and I don't think we're you know right now if you look at the EV market, it's mostly either luxury vehicles or vehicles that aren't sold under luxury names, but priced like luxury cars. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like a Ford Mustang Mach-E, you know, it starts at, I think, 45 or 46. The long-range battery gets up in, well into the 50s. You know, that's, that's luxury car pricing. Yeah, it is, but then you got to look at it. <laughs> uh, if you pitted my 65 Stingray, and it's a 327, 350 horse, four-speed, side pipes, and knockoffs, against a new V6 Camry on a racetrack, the Camry would stomp me. And the Camry is quieter, more comfortable, more practical, more efficient. And there ain't no way on God's green earth I'd swap my Corvette for that Camry. There's, you wouldn't even rent a Camry. <laughs> <laughs> if there wasn't anything else on the lot and I had to go someplace. Uh, but the, the point is, I like what I drive. It's loud. It makes noises. It smells like exhaust. It's got a manual transmission. Every now and then, I got to check the knockoffs to make sure the damn spinners aren't coming loose. Uh, it it comes with a certain number of sacrifices, but I'm perfectly willing to make them because I love that car. I don't care that it rides rough and that I have to shift it and it has no cup holders and I couldn't do anything with them if it did. It's it's going to be. I'm sure you've seen the meme lately that says, of course, a Tesla is faster than your average new car, but it's like the difference between a microwave and a barbecue. <laughs> no one's ever going to ask you to microwave a mistake. Yeah. No, look, it's a great point. Um, there's a certain um, romance to it. You know, here's, so I, I, you know, I grew up in upstate New York. And Syracuse is a you know working class industrial town, but yeah. not far from it are the Finger Lakes, which is you know has its own little wine region there. And I don't I don't remember how the whole controversy started, but uh, winemakers started using caps instead of corks. Um, instead of corks, yeah, because corks occasionally go bad and you lose your wine. And they thought, look, great solution, and people just. Even though it was a better solution, it preserved your wine, and they're easier to open. You don't need to bring a corkscrew with you if you bring it with you, the bottle with you. Someplace. You can put it. You can put it back in the fridge and keep it if you don't drink the whole bottle. Yeah, I know, I know. And people still didn't want it. Now nope. the finger weights guy said, "Hey, we're New Yorkers. We always come up with a better idea." So they made rubber corks that never go bad, and you still get the you know, you all go. that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, there, there, there's the romance to it. What I thought people could do or some companies should do is they should download an exhaust note like you download a ringtone on your phone for your electric car. They, and it should know. go up and down with you know as you're revving it. And you could like you could do crazy stuff like have the exhaust note for like a Ford Model A. You know, you could be cha 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 aren't they doing that with the chargers? Didn't we talk about that a couple of weeks ago? That oh, a there's lot a, of, a, is lot a challenger a charger has, that has suggested doing that. Uh, the problem is, if you ever blow out your speaker, well, there goes your exhaust. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Going to have to get a triaxle back here. Is Jim is Jim going to make it to completely electric by 2035? That seems very short. It is. Look, I, 
it's two product cycles, right? Most vehicles last, you know, six years or so, give or take, before they get a whole re-engineering redesign. So that's two product cycles away. GM says, where's up and down, they're going to do it. It's not that far down, down the road. Uh, I think there will be people who just don't want to make the change just because they, they like gasoline and they like the sound of their motor and the feel of it and all that sort of thing. Hi. And, and those vehicles will be cheaper. They'll be probably much cheaper than the EVs by then. They'll probably be the bargain uh, cars out there. So my guess is, no, they will get close to it, but nobody will get all the way there by 2035. Um, first of all, Mary Barr will be retired by, you know, probably 10 or 12 years by then, um, or probably 10 years at that point, I would think, because she's 61 this year. So someone, it'll be someone else's decision whether or not they even go through with that plan. I, I think it's in some ways an admirable goal. I, I just don't think the market's going to totally be there. I think in large part it will, but um, yeah, I, I and I don't want to be sort of this closed-minded thinker that oh, it can't happen. Uh, I've had friends tell me I'm never going to buy an EV, and I've said, "Really, never? Did you <laughs> did you in 1985 say I'm never going to have a cell phone because the cell phones are the size of a suitcase and the service is bad?" No, um, you're right. They were the size of a suitcase and the service was bad, but you have one in your pocket now. And it fits in your pocket. You use it all the time, and the service is bad. But you use it all the time. I, I would buy a Porsche Taycan. I absolutely would, but it'll be after a 911. <laughs> yeah, I, look, I love a uh, like late 70s 928. To me, it's one of the best designs. Still one of the best designs. No, you want to get an 86 and a half or newer because then you get into the S4 and the better brakes and the better power and everything else. Sorry, that's one of my uh, that's one of my soft spots. <laughs> Look, it, it, yeah, they were probably better quality cars, too. A little bit. You know, those things are... Dis- I mean, the quality proportion in the 80s was generally terrible. Yeah, those things are made to burn a tank of gas at speed. Uh, you know, it was the Germans' alternative to taking a short air flight is, hey, get on the Autobahn and do a buck 35 mm-hmm. for an hour or two. Uh, but there are, oh, my Lord, I have a... I have another German car, another German flagship. It's a 99 Mercedes S600. Uh, you familiar with the term schadenfreude? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've named that car the yeah. schadenfreude express because that and 928s have about the same maintenance expense. Uh, it's it's kind of like taking on a small second mortgage. <laughs> that bleeds. You know, one of the biggest problems <laughs> or, with or cars a, of that era. A small is. second mortgage or a moderate drug habit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't remember which Ferrari it was. A friend of mine and I stopped into this restaurant, and there was a guy had a 83 512. Ferrari. Five, and 512 BBI. It wasn't a 512. Um the interior on those cars were just awful. Like the interior designs in the eighties, everything was square. Oh, oh, well that that could have been uh that could have been a four twelve uh or a four hundred I. Those were both atrocious. But even the BMWs, the interiors were just ugly and crappy. I mean, you go back to forties, fifties, and sixties, the interior designs were just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And then seven seventies were okay, but they were declining. Everything got very pragmatic and mass produced, and they just even when the even when the exteriors looked good, the interiors were just materials were cheap. It was the, that kind of plastic they used, and German uh, leather had a tendency to be rock hard after about three years. Yeah, uh, 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 you know, it, it's like a lot of if you're going to buy an antique or classic, it's got to be from an era where they actually used good materials inside. You're going to end up hating the vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, if we're going to talk about old vehicles, I did want to tap back in this before we ever ended because... You we, just want to say Kragers one more time. No, although Kragers. <laughs> uh, we, we blew right through the mid-90s when you were writing your car uh, uh, reviews down in Dallas, and I really wanted to know what your thoughts were on a 95 uh, Corsica. Oh, don't even. Or Lumina. Come on, David. Spill the beans. <laughs> you Tell mean, me about that. Was it you, that three-page article no, you wrote you, on the uh, the wonders of a Chevy Lumina? 
the aluminum. Oh, my uh, first you know, mother-in-law had the, one of those. They were god awful. Well, I just recently sold. My mother passed away last November or last October, and uh, I in I think it was February was when I finally sold uh, her '95 Ford Taurus. You should have hung on to that thing, man. You no, could have had nursing no. home chic. The the land property values were declining rapidly just by having that fully functional vehicle sitting <laughs> in the driveway. <laughs> there was a, I couldn't get it into the garage because it was packed. That thing was matlock sexy. So mid nineties. What, what was your favorite vehicle from the mid nineties that was uh, worth reviewing? Oof, that, that that wasn't a great era for no. cars. Lotus <laughs> Esprit Turbo. <laughs> they, they they were getting better in the mid nineties. Um, geez. You know who was doing cool stuff in the mid nineties? Actually, AMC. some of the Infinities oh. were pretty good. Yes, the first Q forty fives were sexy. Okay. Yeah, the, the Q forty five was really good. Um, I, I and that just that jumped out at me because I remember I was, you know, I was living in Dallas. I was driving on I seventy five north through the city, and some guy was in, uh, might have been a J thirty, mm-hmm. and which in itself was kind of a neat car. And I was in, actually, I think I was in an I-30T, and he kind of gave me a thumbs up. And I, the car drove great. Uh, I really liked it a lot. All, all those mid-90s, I remember driving like a 95 Monte Carlo, uh, and it was pretty crappy. I mean, it was improved <laughs> over, you know, the Luminous and all that other stuff. But, yeah, they, they, they were, you know, the, the mass market cars then. It was basically a Caprice's smart-ass cousin, you know. It, it really, <laughs> I'll tell you what was great in the late 90s that I was reviewing. Them. The Japanese super sports cars then, like the Super Twin Turbo, the Mazda RX-7, and the 300Z from the time. Yeah. Really, those were all really great. Okay. In yeah. fact, one of the uh, when I first moved to Detroit, I was covering Ford for the Detroit News. Remember, they still owned a controlling stake in Mazda at the time. And I went to Tokyo for the Tokyo Motor Show, and then I took a puddle jumper down to Hiroshima, where Mark Fields, who was you know CEO of Ford eventually, but he was running Mazda for Ford at the time. And I went down there to interview him, and, and Mark just loved it that one of the American journalists would fly all the way to Hiroshima just to talk to him. So he let me get in a right-hand drive RX-7, a, a, a 2000. They stopped selling them in the U.S. in 99, and they sold them from Japan for one more model year. It was right-hand drive. And I got to drive it on Mazda's test track at about 140 miles an hour. Ooh. That was a lot of fun. Those are good looking too. Also, the one they were great looking cars. They, I mean, they weren't all that comfortable. It was pretty tight inside, but they were, uh, you know, those rotary engines were pretty awesome. It, it was a lot of fun. The the one Japanese mid to late 90s car you left out of that was the NSX. That thing, especially after 97, when it got uh, another 20 horsepower power bump up to 290. Those things were fantastic. And I remember seeing them occasionally then, and it was almost the same cool feeling you got when you saw a Ferrari. I just drove the new NSX last, uh, this past weekend, which is a hybrid. It's pretty awesome. Is it? Nice. Uh, Yeah. You know, what else was great from the late 90s was the MR2, the 300 horsepower MR2. That was a lot of fun. Second-gen uh, turbo with the T-tops. Uh, what a way to get a mid-engine car without buying something European. Yeah. They were, I mean, I, I don't know why the Japanese stopped. I mean, Nissan still does. I don't know why the Japanese automakers stopped doing those cool cars. I mean, you know, there's um, you know, there's a Super now, but it's basically, you know, that, that's basically a Z4 with, like, another three weeks of engineering. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't even think it's, it's that good. <laughs> I, I really... The Mark IV Supras was where it kind of ends for me. This is uh, it, it's it's a jacked up clown shoe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, you know that the the U.S. car companies kind of got it together again in the two thousands with sports cars. Um, I think it took the Corvette's always been great. Um, Agreed. And the Mustang has for a while. Wait, 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 wait. Now, first of all, you'll never meet a bigger Corvette fanboy than I am. I've owned a bunch of them. I owned a Corvette dealership at one time. Well, I know what you're going to say that they, that they actually they weren't always great because some of those really crappy ones probably what like oh no seventies eighties oh they suck but they look great the eighty four seventies Stingrays look fantastic but they just drove. Well, from from seventy four to eighty two, the build quality was really crap. And 
I've had a bunch of those. <laughs> uh, 84 body was so much built better, but they were still trying to push that craptastic uh, crap port injection that they had on that thing. It was awful. Uh, 85, I finally got the tomb port and 230 horse, and it was better. And they, it wasn't any huge leap in improvement until uh was it first year 92 when they got the lt1 and traction control and 300 horse mm-hmm. and it actually became a pretty pretty nice car getting in and out was still like crawling in and out of a canoe <laughs> but it was a pretty nice car and yeah they said that way about the nsx by the way love, love driving it but climbing in and out of it was, uh, uh, climbing in and out, and they didn't have a ton of power. Uh, First-gen NSX would teach you conservation of motion, <laughs> <laughs> conservation of momentum. Uh, but there were lots of cool cars, and there are lots of cool – it's a great time to be a car guy now. Everything has so stinking much power. It's it's tough to believe. I know. You can buy a Nissan Altima and get, like, 265 horsepower or something like But that. when you go looking at pony cars and sports cars and fun stuff, everything you can get everything with over 500 horsepower. And mm-hmm. I know that I got buddies that are just going to absolutely kill me for saying this. I really kind of think once you're north of about 450, it's not usable. It's not fun. It turns the car really serious. And this kind of lends itself to the old saying about driving a slow car fast versus driving a fast car slow. Do you find when you're in a car with north of, say, 450 or 500 horsepower and you're just in basic suburban or city driving that it, it is kind of on – they're almost revving too much and, and you, you, you feel – the car is herky-jerky, driving at slower speeds constantly. A little bit. You always feel like you're trying to walk a rabid shark down the street. And you have to find a way to kind of yeah. contain everything, kind of, uh, you know, keep everything under wraps. Even uh, my wife had an 05 GTO, and there's a reason it was her car and not my car. I'd be in prison right now. <laughs> but it it was fun to get in. You could drive it like a fairly normal human being but if you ever dropped a hammer man did the did that thing get with it right now and it would also you know when you look down you thought well i got to be doing about 65 and you look down and it's a buck 10 yep that <laughs> car it drove great the problem is it was you know it was an old holden Monaro. yeah um and it had that jelly bean styling from yeah the it, it didn't have it didn't a lot good. it, it just didn't it, it looked like uh, a Cavalier's big brother, Oof. and it didn't have a yeah, lot to distinguish but, it. The, the Holden they brought here that was awesome was the Chevy SS that they just got rid of about three or four years ago. Yeah, and Chevrolet didn't have the the true enthusiast following. Guys who looked at that also looked at Camaros and said, "Well, I'll buy the Camaro. That's that's fifteen grand cheaper." Right. That that yeah. The SS was expensive because. Bringing cars from Australia to the U.S. is it's a lousy business model because of currency and shipping and everything else. But um, you know, you can get a big roomy sedan with rear-wheel drive and a six-speed and a V8, um, and they they started off around forty-two, I think. Um, it, it, I mean, it actually was a great deal. It just wasn't a cheap car because you're no. right; you can get a Camaro for you know well-equipped for 30 at that time. Well, and it was kind of aimed at BMW at the time, and that's not something you cross-shop. You don't go from a BMW dealer and say, hey, let's go down and see what the Chevy dealer's got. Yeah, it was. you're right. It was kind of a car without a home in a way. I mean, you really, because they didn't make that many, and they didn't ship that many here. I think Chevy sold, I bet you, it was about 500 a year. I think it was only what 2014 15 16 and then it was gone it was only here for three model years or, yeah i want to say maybe into 17 i remember yeah um because when they discontinued it i immediately went online see we were I talking think- about david's book but this is what happens when you <laughs> stick a couple car guys in a room it's going to devolve <laughs> <laughs> that's true um but no I, I tried to buy those a dealer in connecticut and had one this dark green color that i wanted and you know, the guy put me on hold, and the time I was on hold, someone else snapped it up. Oh, oh that stinks. Yeah. <laughs> Did you go and punch him in the eye? 
What's your What's your home address, fella? I'd like to come uh, chat with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll see you the day after. Never. <laughs> All right, we got one more question about your book, David. Uh, or or at least your your professional opinion, and then we're going to devolve again. And, of course, the name of the book is Charging Ahead, GM, Mary Barra, and the Reinvention of an American Icon. Thank you. Yeah, it's available now <sighs> on Chargingaheadbook.com. You can buy There you go. <laughs> available now on Kindle, an audio book print re- version. It will be released October 10th on HarperCollins Leadership. What do you think the auto industry looks like 10 years from now? Um, so... I'm not even going to go. I'm not even going to give you the forecast. What I think is, you'll see. Uh, so ten years from now, so we're looking at 2032. Boy, I shudder to think of that that year. Um, but uh, look, I I think well over half the vehicles sold will be electric. Wow, um, that's bold. I, I I still think you know. I, I but I think you could see like 40 percent of the vehicles out there still being internal combustion. And look, there are other people who think I'm being conservative, uh, but I, I, I think let's just say somewhere between fifty and sixty percent of the vehicles are electric. Most most luxury vehicles will be north of one um, half. Would be a pretty radical position to take on something that's as entrenched as we are now. I think what it's going to take is the next generation that's been more receptive to the idea of electric vehicles. You're going to have to age yeah. out guys like Mark and I yeah. and have a, a younger generation and maybe two generations removed. You know, uh, our kids are both in their late 20s, or at least my one of mine Mine's is. in the early to mid. Yeah. Uh, and they've grown up around internal combustion engines. They're probably more receptive to the idea than they are, than we are. But I think their kids will think this is completely natural. Yeah. So but see, there, there there are two curves on this thing that that'll push the automakers to make more and more EVs because of regulations around the globe, particularly Europe and China, but even in the U.S. The cost of making internal combustion vehicles that comply with ever tougher fuel economy and emission standards they're getting more and more expensive. Batteries are getting cheaper all the time. So those and, and that's kind of what. You know, that was a key part of Mary Barra's strategy is they looked at those cost curves, one going up and one coming down, and they could see a point where they cross over. And at that point, you have cost parity in developing and building EVs versus conventional cars. And and I think that's where everyone starts to really push more and more models. And, and I, I do think electric vehicles have captured the imagination of people. Um, and look, you could take my forecast, which is, you know, there's literally, Brett, no science to that. I, I'm just answering a question that you asked me right now. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen forecasts of 50%. While you're up, give me another beer. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, yeah. um, so, you know, someone else may forecast 40, someone else may say 70, and we'll all be wrong. It'll end up being like, you know, 43.6 or 38.2 or something. I, I think it's coming in the technology. Once it gets to a certain scale, which I think we'll see in the next few years, next three, four years, the costs start to come down faster. You know, one thing Mary Barra said a number of times is, it's just another powertrain. You know, it's, you know, whether you're with diesel or manual transmissions or automatic transmissions for gasoline powered vehicles or, or electric or a hybrid, it's just another powertrain. And for a lot of people out there, you know, we're in some ways we're the wrong people to ask because, you know, we like, sports cars and fun cars yeah for someone who drives a camry or a nissan altima or chevy traverse if, if if the vehicle has great quality and it's cheaper to charge at home and there's plenty of charging out on the highway and and they like it and the price is right they'll buy it they're not really worried with what's powering it under the hood guys and like us are going to be the holdouts You'll like this, Brett. Someone said to me, because I asked the same question to a guy who follows the industry and is a consultant to the car companies. And he said, he said he could see a time where most of the vehicles sold are electric, but at the very high end, or at this, you know, one end of the spectrum, you'll have a bunch of gasoline power sports cars for guys who love them. And then you'll have a bunch of super cheap internal combustion vehicles for people who can't afford electric and everything else in the middle will be electric. I can see something like that happening. And those folks will be a lot like the guy who lives across the street from me who's got the 25-year-old Camry 
that's the automotive equivalent of a cockroach because it won't die. <laughs> that's right. It's just so damn dependable. He's been, Cursed car. He's been parking that sucker underneath the same tree for 18 years because that's as long as we've been in the neighborhood. <laughs> and it's still rolling. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it will not die. And uh, I haven't taken a real close look at it. It's got to have some rust on it someplace. But, boy, you can't see any. Yep. Paint's faded. Paint's completely shot. And it's kind of like the joke meme on uh, online that you see that they're going to repossess the car because he really should have bought something else by now. <laughs> you know, every, I know a couple, I know two guys like that who have ancient Camrys that just won't die. Uh, mine was a Navigator. I had a Navigator that I put 285,000 miles on, still ran wow. great. And I couldn't bring myself to sell it, so I gave it to one of my daughters. <laughs> and wow. She, and she's still driving it. We put 225000 on our Camry. We had a 97 Camry. Of course you and, did. Uh, Didn't uh, have Kragers on it either. No, much to its loss. <laughs> hey, what's, what's the problem with the Kragers? There's no problem with Kragers. God gave us Kragers Ma- so we'd be happy. Mark is, obsessed. <laughs> Mark is obsessed with the world's ugliest Mopars, and he wants to slap Kragers on all of them. Oh, God is my <laughs> witness. If, if, he's, if he can find something that's got a hood the size of an aircraft carrier. <laughs> if I could play badminton on the back deck and still put a six-pack in there. Good. Weighs 73 metric tons. <laughs> <laughs> that's Mark's kind of car. That's what he's looking for. Someday. He wants oh. a Cuda. Uh, a Chrysler Newport. I would love it. I would love to have a Chrysler Newport from the mid '60s or a uh, mid '60s Chrysler New Yorker, but the two door because that's sexy. Because the doorways, you know, the rear doors. I would yeah. love like, those really big Chrysler Imperials. <gasps> yeah, yeah. Those those the aren't that bad. Old. Those were just like they were pretty amazing. Now the outside looked great. I mean, it's just a, ro- a rolling brick. But uh, the, the I'm interior, take the, a break. the dash. You guys, let me know when you're done. The dash had no sex to it at all. It's it's just it was weirdly slanted and terrifically ugly. But uh, the outside of it, I, I did love. And I even I would I would make myself live <laughs> with a even a 1970 uh, Newport or New Yorker. Just uh, the two doors. It would have to be that because those were even bigger. Mark was in tainted. The 60s. Mark was tainted from the jump. His first car was a '55 Plymouth. <laughs> you'd, have, you'd have to meet my dad and go. Oh, that's why. Uh huh. Charles is. Well, look, uh, there, there is something cartoonish about those '60s Imperials. Oh God, yeah. They're <laughs> and, and, and that's what I liked about them. Is they're, <laughs> they're so you know damn they dumb. Did you see your <laughs> eyes open up? <laughs> it's like, yeah, he nailed it. That's it. Holy but crap, they, dude! Because they look like the car that, like, one of the villains from the uh, the Burt Ward Batman series would have. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there's just something like fun, ugly, cool about that. Well, you're thinking about Green Lantern, is what you're oh, thinking about. Oh, absolutely. And that was what a '66 wasn't Green or was Green Lantern's a '65? Uh, I believe it was a New Yorker that they it tricked was ugly. out. Yeah, it, it, it had its issues. They kind of mixed two of the years and then did some funky things it with was, it. But I would own it in a heartbeat. I know you would. It's just so wrong. And you know what I'd put on it? Craggers. 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 Jensen triaxles. <laughs> you'd have a Craig. Someone tells me he has like a Craiger coffee table. You'd, ha- uh, if you'd I have could. a Craco cassette player in that oh, sucker. Hell. No, I'd be a Pioneer, actually. It'd be a Pioneer 8-track. You remember you were, don't you? You have a Craiger wheel. On its side with a piece of glass on top of your living No, but you gave me a great idea for Christmas. When did you come to my house, David? Who the hell are you? Going to fix him right up. You were the guy. Okay. All right, as long as we're on this tack. David, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car? Um, nothing ever too – I mean, other than drive incredibly fast. Um, okay, let's you know, have the, it. The, the, the RX-7, that was at least on a test track with a helmet, so probably not too crazy. I had a – Lamborghini uh, Gallardo Superleggero one weekend when I was writing the reviews for Christmas week. <laughs> and we took it out, uh, highway, a friend of mine and I took it out the highway west of town, and we, we got it going about 150, which, and, you know, you know the horizon comes up really fast. Like, you, 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 like it, it's, you know, it, it gets... Plymouth Verizon? Is that what you said? <laughs> <laughs> not even with craters on it not even no i do have my limits <laughs> god front wheel drive you got to put the fatties up front you know what no although i have to admit i would probably drive one of those uh, uh what was it a not a dodge omni which was the one that shelby did that no, was, was just the, a, it was a horrendous the, nightmare the glh and the glhs 
That's right. I was trying to think the Dodge version was the Omni. God, they were they were well, basically knockoffs of a Volkswagen Rabbit, except way worse quality. Yeah. You, well, you know, the, to bring it all back to Chevy, they were just Chevy Chevettes with more class. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, Chevy Chevettes were so god-awful. Nobody copied <laughs> My that. sister had one of those, and it was like driving a turd, a brown turd. It was an awful car. The only thing that was worse than a Chevette was a Yugo. And, <laughs> well, and at least, what about the, the Citation? Oh, God. Oh, that was okay. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, hey, at the time, at the time, the 81, 82, was? yeah, that was... The Pontiac <laughs> 6000, that was the Pontiac. Oh, God. Pontiac Sunbird. <laughs> oh, I drove, I test drove one of those. You ever try to do a donut in one? Don't. Backwards in the snow. That's the only won't. way that works. <laughs> yeah. A friend of mine had a Chevy Malibu from the 80s, and um, the the headliner, remember, you guys remember this from the 80s? It would hang down. Because yeah, so you just, just like, put thumbtacks on it. fabric would separate from the foam, uh-huh. and he, he cut a slit in it so he could, like, store things up there. <laughs> I bet he did. <laughs> yeah, here come the cops. Stick this up there. Put the thumbtack yeah. back in. So you know Jim. Yeah. <laughs> Jim! <laughs> and many others like him. <laughs> There's a lot of Jims in the world. Uh, to answer to answer your question, um, I have never done 150 in a car. I've done a buck 40. I've done 155 on a couple different bikes, though. And as much as you think you get tunnel vision in a car, on a bike, it's like looking through a piece of tube but at least you see jesus on the other end (laughs) yeah screaming slow down dummy slow down (laughs) i don't want you yet (laughs) not one of the things i'm real proud of and unfortunately my father is going to hear this when it posts this weekend (laughs) sorry dad Dad. yeah i did write it like that (laughs) my dad i was i called my dad when i was in my 20s and told him i was going to buy a motorcycle he had one when he was younger and he dropped it and he walked away from the accident Mm mm-hmm and he said to me, he said, uh, you know, he said, I have three siblings, and I won't get into the detail. He just said, you know, you're the only one I never really worry about. He said, but the way you drive your cars, <laughs> if you buy a motorcycle, I'll be worried every day. He said, can you just not, not do this? <laughs> <laughs> See, that's, <laughs> David, that's, that's where you slipped up. He, and then he was not that kind of guy to make requests. I kind of held the phone, like, you know, who's this? And then who's I said, yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I can do that. Well, <laughs> yeah. you, so you could have turned it around. You missed a, an opportunity there, Dave, because you just said, you could have said, well, I'm about 5,000 away from this really nice other car. Uh-huh. So I was just going to settle for the motorcycle. <laughs> I don't know, Dad. See, and I, I never. It's Imperial. Uh, Hell yeah. Scott Craig <laughs> Even better, it's a Rambler ambassador. Oh, God. Dude, I'd be there. I know I know where you can get that car. I, I have looked- high school had one. I mean, that was <laughs> probably the longest automobile ever made. I mean, it, it, it had to be 30 meters long. <laughs> I, would, I would take a 55 Nash. Yeah, Nash Rambler in a heartbeat. I'll, I'll challenge your, uh, your Rambler against a 61 Impala. Oof. That thing is almost as long as the crew cab Ford pickup I got, and I owned them both at the same time, so I'm not just blowing hey, smoke. But, but those early '60s GM cars were pretty cool. Yeah, like the early '60s Grand Prix, I thought were fantastic. Yes, cars. absolutely, and uh, very understated. If you if you combine the '61 Impala uh, with a built 409 dual quads four speed, you you do the Beach Boys song to it. That actually winds up being kind of a fun car. <laughs> you know, years ago, Car and Driver used to have a column um, called, I think it was called Vintage Stuff. Mm-hmm. And they would find like rare, uh, you know, rare collectors that people just didn't know that much about. And the early 60s Grand Prix, they had a heavy duty version. It basically yes. had the GTO engine. With the eight lug wheels. and Yeah. Oh, wow. And if I could, if I could get my hands on one of those. Because they they look just like GM was so good at this in the '60s of taking a stock car that already looked pretty good, adding just a little tiny bit of trim and an awesome engine to it, and making it into something really special. Agreed. Um, in addition to having a mess of Corvettes, I've had a pile of Grand Prix and loved every one of them for a different reason. Even managed to have a couple of the 3.8 supercharged version, which was sneaky quick, got decent mileage on the highway. And, mm-hmm. you know, 
uh, my late, first car was an '85 Grand Prix with a three-eight. Yeah, late '90s, early 2000s. Say what you will about GM interiors and things like that. Ran both those cars over 200,000 miles and had minimal problems with them, so they were just terrific. I can't argue with you on Grand Prix anything. We've been speaking with David Welch, the author of Charging Ahead, GM, Mary Barra, and the Reinvention of an American Icon. You can find all the social media links for David on DrivenRadioShow.com. David, thank you so much for being with us. Guys, great chatting with you. I had a lot of fun talking cars. Thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners. You can find us online at DrivenRadioShow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Driven Radio Show. Yeah, I say Instagram. I never add anything to Instagram. <laughs> Someday. You know, what you're doing is you're setting a goal and a you hope what, and a dream. You know what happens is I'll wind up at a show or an auction or something like that, and I'll take a half dozen pictures on my phone, and that's what goes to Instagram. And I apologize. I got a really crap ball Instagram feed. I know there's some way to cheat around that so that you can actually upload stuff to Instagram, like from your computer. I don't know what it is. I know how to. I, I figured out how to do it from my <gasps> my camera. Yeah, which has always been my big bitch about Instagram <laughs> is that I don't shoot stuff on my phone. I lug around pro caliber oh, yeah, Canon yeah. stuff. There's an app on my phone that <gasps> downloads all the pictures I shoot from my camera. I can post that. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, it okay, is. Mr. Fancy Pants. Yeah, well, I still have a crappy answer. <laughs> but you can look at it at Driven Radio Show. And you can listen everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I am Brett Hatfield for Mr. Mark Groves. Yo! Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here on Driven Radio. Driven Radio.